Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, this is episode six of the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, and today I'm going to be shifting gears a bit. So typically on this show, you'll hear me talk about anxiety and evidence-based strategies or treatments for managing it. But today I'm going to be playing for you uh, a conversation that I had with a pediatrician last week, not about anxiety specifically, but about the Delta variant of COVID-19 and kids. And I decided to do this episode for parents and to stray a bit from my usual path in doing so because I know that a lot of parents, including me, are feeling pretty anxious right now about the Delta variant and what it means for our kids. And to give you some context as to why this is the case, up until just about a few weeks ago, Most of us were under the impression that kids were, on the whole, at low risk of getting severely sick or having to be hospitalized or dying from COVID-19. But over the past couple of weeks, the narrative surrounding this has started to change, and there have been an increasing number of alarms that have been sounded about the risk that the Delta variant might pose to kids. And there have even been some reports suggesting that the Delta variant might be making kids sicker than previous strains of COVID-19, and that this might even be the case for previously healthy kids. And as a parent of two young healthy kids who aren't yet eligible to be vaccinated, I've been feeling pretty anxious about all of this. And one of the reasons I think I've been feeling so anxious is because I I honestly haven't really known what to make of all of these reports and what additional precautions I should or shouldn't be taking at this point in time, especially given that there doesn't seem to be any clear consensus among medical experts right now as to just how dangerous the Delta variant is or might be. For kids. And so I thought it could be helpful to bring a pediatrician on the show who could present the facts for us in a clear and unbiased manner and tell us what we know and what remains unknown about the Delta variant and kids. 
And my hope is that this conversation will help parents like me to better discern whether the alarms that are sounding within and around us are true alarms or false alarms so that we can better gauge to what extent and in what ways we we should respond to the anxiety that so many of us are feeling right now because of the Delta variant. And for those of you who listened to the first episode of this podcast, you'll likely remember that this is key because our approach to managing anxiety really depends upon whether the anxiety that we are feeling is adaptive, given the threat that's in front of us, or not, right? Ideally, we're going to respond differently depending on whether we're experiencing a true alarm or a false alarm. And so my intent in doing this episode is to help clarify this for parents, at least to some extent. That said, I want to be clear that this episode is not intended to eliminate the uncertainty and anxiety that so many of us parents are experiencing right now, because unfortunately, I don't think that's really possible. In fact, as hard as it might be, I actually think it's really important for us to accept this uncertainty and to acknowledge that our feared outcomes for our kids could happen as we move forward. And here's why. As I talked about in the first episode of this podcast, uncertainty and the anxiety that accompanies it, these often pull us to try to make things more certain in some way in an attempt to reduce our anxiety. So we might do things like listen to interviews such as these again and again, Or we might read articles about the Delta variant in kids nonstop. We might also talk with family and friends repeatedly about our concerns and and reassure ourselves over and over again with statistics about COVID in kids in, in hopes of bringing that anxiety down a bit. But though these strategies might be helpful for some people when used in small doses, We don't want to rely on them exclusively, if at all. And this is because though they may help us feel better in the moment, these strategies are likely to leave us feeling pretty anxious a little while later when we come across some new piece of information or when a new thought pops into our heads, like what if, you know, what if they were wrong? And because of this, it's much more effective in the long run if we can make the hard decisions that we need to make for our families and and accept the uncertainty that comes with these decisions so that we can give ourselves the chance to practice sitting with this uncertainty, which will eventually with time help us become more comfortable with the discomfort that this uncertainty evokes. So, Even though I invited my guests for this episode onto the show to share more information with you, I want to stress that I don't recommend going down the path of doing endless research about the Delta variant in kids, because it's really only going to get you so far and and will likely leave you feeling more anxious at the end of the day 
and take up lots of time that, that you'll never get back. And so instead, I'd encourage you to listen to this episode and, and to then spend a few minutes each day or every couple of days looking to see what, if anything, more we know about the Delta variant in kids so that you can stay up to date with the latest recommendations and guidelines. But I'd say spend no more than just a few minutes doing this when when you do look for this additional information. Okay, with that said, I want to introduce you now to Dr. Annie Andrews, who is my guest for this episode. Dr. Andrews is an associate professor at the Medical University of South Carolina in the Department of Pediatrics, as well as the Pediatric Hospital Medicine Fellowship Director there. She is a board-certified pediatrician, a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics, an expert in gun violence prevention, and a fierce advocate for children. And I am so grateful that she was willing to take the time to come on this show and chat with me. I hope that you'll find this conversation as helpful as I did, and that you'll go and follow Dr. Andrews on Twitter at AnnieAndrewsMD. And now, here's our conversation. I'm here today with Dr. Annie Andrews. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Great. Well, I want to get us started by by talking a little bit about the Delta variant and the risk that it might pose to kids. So over the past year, we've been told time and time again that young kids are at low risk when it comes to COVID-19. And so I'm wondering how, if at all, the Delta variant changes how we should be thinking about COVID in kids. Great question. Um, Yes, I think it's sort of turned everything upside down for those of us who are focused on children in this pandemic. And I remain incredibly grateful that during the whole first year and a half of this pandemic, children fared pretty well. And really the things we did with children the first year and a half were to protect the adults. All the school lockdowns, you know, taking kids out of extracurricular activities, all those things we did and I did as a parent to protect the adults that we knew were at risk. But now what we're seeing with the Delta variant really has changed the narrative. And I think it is a struggle, and I know this from my own personal experience, to really shift your mindset about your approach to this pandemic, especially because we thought we were on the way out of this. We thought, you know, re-enrolling kids in activities, back to normal. And unfortunately, that's just not the situation we find ourselves in now. And so there's still so much we don't know about how the Delta variant will affect children, but there is a lot that we do know. And a couple things that I think are important. We know that children have higher viral loads of the Delta variant when they are sick from COVID than they did when they were sick from the original strain of COVID. And having more viral load or more virus in your nose when you are infected leads to increased transmissibility. So it's just more infectious and the chances of kids passing it to other kids or kids passing it to unvaccinated adults is way higher than it was before. And, you know, virologists, epidemiologists, they use this term when we're talking about how infectious something is um, called the R-naught 
And it basically means one person who is infected, how many people are they likely to infect? And you can imagine the cascading effect of you know, a larger R naught or the more people an infected person can infect is just going to lead to the snowball effect of more infections. And so to put it in perspective, the typical flu has an R naught of one to two, meaning one person with the flu is likely to infect one or two other people. The original COVID strain was more in the two and a half range. So one person with COVID is likely to infect about two and a half people with COVID. The Delta variant, we're looking at five to eight. So it is way more infectious than the other variants we were dealing with at the beginning of this pandemic. And so that is what we are seeing. And we are seeing children who oftentimes still have mild infections, but they are going to the playground, they're going to their activities, and unfortunately, they're just more likely to spread the virus to other unvaccinated children, unvaccinated adults, vaccinated adults who have weakened immune systems, or even healthy vaccinated adults. And so it's just, it's a whole different ballgame than what we were dealing with back at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So Delta is more, more infectious, easier mm-hmm. to transmit. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, I'm seeing some talk, uh, some people expressing concern that the Delta variant might actually be making kids sicker. What if anything do we know about that? Yeah, so I think that that is a really important question and one that is keeping us pediatricians, child health professionals, parents up at night because we don't really know yet. We are definitely seeing more positive cases of kids. I just read the other day that of all the you know, new COVID infections, 20% of them are in children, which is way different than way higher than what we were seeing at the beginning. So we know more kids are testing positive and we know that we're seeing more kids in the hospital with COVID. And yes, we are seeing some severely ill children, even previously healthy children with COVID, but we don't know enough to know, is this virus really acting different in children or is this just because children under the age of 12 aren't able to be vaccinated, people aren't wearing masks anymore, people are returning to their normal lives. I think over time we'll start to understand sort of the science behind what the Delta variant is doing to children compared to the original strain, but there is cause for alarm everywhere you look. We don't have an answer to that, but there is certainly cause for alarm. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, because the Delta variant swept through other countries like the UK even first, mm-hmm. do we have data from other countries to, that might clue us in to whether the Delta variant might actually be riskier for kids? Mm-hmm. And I think in my, my perception of what we can learn from UK is actually that data makes me feel a little bit better about where we might be headed and that maybe this is, you know, this isn't going to be as bad as we think it is. And yes, more kids are going to test positive. More kids are going to be quarantined. Some proportion of those kids will have to go to the emergency department because of shortness of breath or high fevers or dehydration. And some proportion of those kids who show up in the emergency department will be admitted to the hospital for a night or two. Um, I still hold out a lot of hope that we're not going to see just widespread, severe critical illness in children. And I think that is what the UK data is suggesting. Um, But, you know, I think we cannot underestimate the impact on children and families of even just a trip to the emergency department and how disruptive that is to 
um, the child's just like the logistics of the family, but also, you know, psychologically how disruptive that is to a family and to see your child that ill requiring that. And, you know, hospitalization is just one step beyond that. And, you know, it's just, it's every case is one too many, in my opinion. Um, and I just think we have to do everything we can to protect children, knowing that we don't know exactly how bad this could be, but there are things we can do to protect them and we got to do that. That makes sense. And I'm guessing we've got some data about maybe what's happening in that like kind of acute phase when, when surges are high, when the Delta variant was really surging through the UK. But we also don't know what might happen kind of in the long run as a result of kids getting infected with the Delta variant. Is that right? right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly, during the first 12 to 18 months of the pandemic, as a pediatrician who works in the hospital setting, I was really seeing more of that post-COVID MISC diagnosis, which is this inflammatory process that we're still, you know, working to understand, but that happens weeks after, and maybe an asymptomatic COVID infection. We were seeing more of that than we were actually seeing children hospitalized with acute COVID infections. And so to your point of the long-term ramifications of more kids testing positive, we don't know. And does that mean a bunch of these kids in four months are going to show up with MISC, which is a very serious illness? Um, yeah, we just don't know or, you know, what it's going to do to their lung physiology or to their, you know, their healthy little hearts. What is it going to do? We don't know. Right. Okay. And, and then there's also like some, some kids having just maybe not MISC, but like long, long-term symptoms, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've read a lot more about that in adults, um, but, you know, long-term exercise intolerance, sort of this like brain fog and inability to concentrate. And yeah, I just think we don't know what it's going to do for children in the long term. And that is scary for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I've heard a lot of arguments from people that, you know, that yes, maybe the Delta variant is more infectious than let's say the the um, the flu, right? The R naught number mm -hmm. is um, higher, but that doesn't necessarily mean there are worse outcomes in the flu. So people keep, I've heard a lot of people compare the rates of hospitalization and deaths in kids for COVID and the flu. And kind of with the argument being that, well, if, you know, kids are, some kids are getting hospitalized with the flu and it's similar in terms of COVID. Some kids die because of the flu just mm -hmm. with COVID, but, but with the flu every winter, we're not keeping kids, you know, locked in their houses where mm -hmm. all the time, whenever they go out. So why should we do so with COVID? Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts about that, that kind of line of thinking there? Yeah. I mean, I think that is really interesting and I see why that's, where a lot of people are going because we do have experience with annual flu and it affects children and adults and COVID and the flu, the actual symptoms of the illness are quite similar. So I think it makes sense to try to put COVID in the context of what we know about the flu. And so I think it's important to just level set and say that COVID is not the flu. You know, in the United States, we've lost over 600,000 people to COVID. An average flu year, we lose 34,000. So those numbers are nowhere in, near in the same ballpark, right? And that's overall, that's adults and kids. But when you're thinking specifically about kids, I was just refreshing my 
memory about the numbers that we've seen in the most recent flu seasons, you know, pre-COVID. And in the 2019 to 2020 flu season, there were like 188 pediatric deaths from the flu. We've already lost over 500 kids from COVID. So COVID is not the flu. And I'm not going to pretend to be a virologist or an epidemiologist and explain exactly why this is so much more serious. Um, I think there's a lot of factors at play, but I think we just need to remember that this is, we are dealing with illness and death on a scale that is nothing like what we see with the annual flu. And yes, over time, we're going to start to think about COVID like we currently think about the flu and you know, a certain proportion of the population will hopefully be vaccinated, including children. And so it will just be another one of those sort of daily risks we take every winter season by sending our children to school, and it will be an acceptable risk at that time. But right now, that is not where we are. Unlike with the flu, right, we get those parents are getting their kids vaccinated every year against the flu, but we don't have that vaccine for kids under 12 right now for COVID. Exactly. Right. Right. And we have, you know, most pediatric patients who haven't been infected with COVID, their immune systems are naive to COVID. Whereas with the flu, you know, a lot of kids have been vaccinated in years prior or they've been infected in years prior. So their immune system has some ability to fight off the flu. So many of our children right now are walking around completely COVID naive because they haven't been infected and they are not, not able to be vaccinated yet. And so that is just a setup for a severe infection potentially if they were to catch it. Makes sense. And, and I, I guess kind of, a, so th that's a concern that I have, right? That they mm -hmm. haven't seen this before. Their bodies don't know how to handle this. Mm -hmm. I've also heard people say that like, well, that's all the more reason for maybe like why like getting infected could actually be helpful for them in some way, right? That like, if they get infected, that then maybe their bodies will be able to recognize it in the future. Uh, like, what do you say in response to kind of comments like that? Or I mean, it's hard for me to know how to respond to that because it just really goes against sort of the basic principles of public health and what we know about this virus. And as someone who has treated children with COVID and heard horror stories from my husband, who's a critical care doctor and taking care of adults with COVID, my colleagues who have worked in the pediatric intensive care unit caring for kids with COVID, like we need to do everything we can to avoid these preventable illnesses and deaths in children and purposefully infecting your kids or kind of, you know, hoping they get a natural infection is not an evidence-based approach to this and is incredibly risky and also will continue to feed this ongoing pandemic because every infected patient is going to infect other people and it is just not a responsible approach and an approach that really terrifies me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because even if your kid were to get the virus and turn out to be okay, mm -hmm. who's to say what's going to happen to all the other kids they come into contact exactly. with? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you're, you, so you're in South Carolina right now where vaccination rates are somewhat lower than in some other states. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about what you're seeing in, in your hospitals uh, in mm -hmm. South Carolina right now. Yeah, so it definitely is concerning to be working um, in a region with lower vaccination rates, especially as the parent of three children who are too young to be vaccinated. 
because we know the more vaccinated adults we have, the more protected the entire community is going to be. And so everybody needs to do their part by if they're eligible to go out and get vaccinated. And that includes those kids who are 12 and up. And I've seen, you know, on social media and people have asked me, am I going to get my kids vaccinated? I mean, I will literally sleep in line overnight if I have to, so that they can be first in line to be vaccinated. And I'm on wait list for trials because I am so eager to protect my children. So what we're seeing down here is just a really deep increase in the number of cases that are being diagnosed every day among adults and children. And, you know, our hospitals are much fuller now than they were six to eight weeks ago, because we're seeing a lot, um, you know, over, I believe over 80% of what we're seeing is the Delta variant. Um, we have a percent positivity rate in my state that is way too high, well over 10%, um, which just means that there is a lot of virus in our community right now. And I think it, you know, I feel for my community and I think we're all exhausted and we just wanna be past this. And we all thought we were like really almost past it. But I think the truth of the matter is science doesn't really care what we think or, you know, what where we are mentally, like it's gonna do what it does. And the difference between sort of the hopelessness, I think that some of us might be feeling or struggling with now compared to at the beginning is now we have a tool to make this stop. We have the vaccine. Like if we had had a vaccine in March, 2020, I mean, imagine what we could have avoided. And we have that now. And I think everyone is just so sort of demoralized by this whole thing that they've lost sight of that's like this huge, amazing, I mean, really amazing thing that happened that we ha got this vaccine right when we needed it. And now we just need to get those shots in people's arms. And that's our way out. That's really our way out. And I think there's a lot of, you know, increasingly effective public health messaging going on in states like mine with low vaccination rates, because people are starting to feel it. They're starting to see that, okay, you know, we're not getting enough people vaccinated and we're nowhere near the end of this. And I think eventually people will see as they hear of their friends and family getting tested positive or getting hospitalized, like more and more people will understand that this, the vaccine is our way out. Yeah. And I'm wondering for people in states where maybe vac vaccination rates are higher, right? It, like, what if it, how if, how if at all does that change maybe your your concerns about COVID and kids, right? Like are kids as much at risk in states where vaccination rates are higher or or can parents maybe let their guards down a little bit in those mm -hmm. states if especially if they're vaccinated? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say first that the higher the proportion of the population that's vaccinated, the less risk there is for everyone, including unvaccinated children. And so if I could snap my fingers and be in a state that had higher vaccination rates, that would make me feel so much better about sending my children to school next week. Um, so there is a strong correlation between the, the health of the community, the risk in the community and the proportion of adults who are vaccinated. So yes, I think if I lived in one of those areas, I would feel a little bit less panicked and concerned. I think the other thing is states with higher vaccination rates also are likely to be states that are allowing mask mandates in schools. And so that's that multi-layered protection that we're talking about. And unfortunately in states that have lower vaccination rates, 
those are often the states that are also banning mask mandates, meaning that children who are unvaccinated and unable to be vaccinated at this point are going to start the school year in communities with low rates of adults being vaccinated, high virus transmissibility, and essentially no ability to protect themselves in the classroom other than them wearing their own mask, which does offer some protection, but not as much protection as if the whole classroom was masked. Yeah. And I've, I've been hearing some parents um, talking about getting their kids N95s or KN95s as a way, like especially, you know, if their their state isn't requiring mm -hmm. masks as a way to add that extra protection. I'm wondering, what are your thoughts? Like, is that, should we be going out and buying more than N95s for kids? So my personal thought about that is, as a parent and just completely 100% as a parent, I think I do, there is science behind those masks being more effective than some of the masks that, you know, my kids wear that we buy online, but I haven't gone to the level of buying those for my children. As someone who has worn those masks in the hospital setting before, they are not as comfortable as the other masks. So I think it's just, you know, it's a weighing the risks and benefits. Um, I do think that if, you know, I am really lucky that my children are healthy. Um, I think if my children had any chronic diseases, I probably would think a little bit more about the N95s or KN95s. I haven't gotten to that point yet, um, but you know, the first time one of my kids turns up positive, I'm sure I'll be filled with some regret of not taking that extra step. Um, but I do think that sending them to school in the regular masks, I do feel like they're probably more likely to keep them on for the whole day and be a little more comfortable. And so that's sort of a, a bargain I'm making with myself as a mom and a pediatrician. Um, but it is a reasonable approach, especially in older kids who, you know, really don't mind wearing them kids who have underlying conditions like asthma, I think it, it is a smart approach. And how about if you're not gonna go the route of N95s, would double masking be worthwhile? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I think it's all about, you know, we all take these calculated risks every day. And it's about, at the end of the day, it's about what that parent is comfortable with and what's gonna make them feel comfortable sending their kid into the classroom. And so, I urge all parents to send their children, regardless of where they live or what the you know proportion of adults vaccinated is in their state, every child needs to be wearing a mask in the classroom, vaccinated or unvaccinated. Children two and up should be wearing masks. Um, and then I think it's a matter again of what you're personally comfortable with. And I think two masks, two soft cloth masks is better than one. So I think that's reasonable. Um, I think it's whatever sort of makes that parent feel comfortable and confident with their choice to send their kids to school this fall. That makes sense. Yeah. And, and this is kind of one huge exercise in tolerating uncertainty. There aren't any right or wrong answers here necessarily other than it's not, I mean, this is masks, right? We, we want to be wearing masks. Well, that's the safest bet. But like, from there, each parent has to make their own decision about what what level of risk they feel comfortable taking for themselves and for their, their family and their children. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And, and kind of that, that leads me to my next question, right? I think so many parents are just tired, like you said right now at this stage, right? We've, we've kind of had to sacrifice so much because of the pandemic. And I personally know a lot of people who are just ready to just be back to normal, right? To do all the things that they've, you know, that they did 
before the pandemic and they don't want to slow down their lives. They, they want to be able to get together for large family dinners indoors, you know, with families from different households without masks. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least where I live, like the people I know, that's in, those are in high, states with high vaccination rates, right? Where, mm-hmm. where people are wanting to do this. And I'm curious, kind of, again, given that there's this, this fine line that we have to walk between, um, you know, wanting to live life and not shelter our children mm-hmm. entirely, but mm-hmm. also wanting to minimize the risk of getting COVID or getting really sick mm-hmm. because of COVID. And so I'm wondering kind of for those parents who are just really, really wanting to get back to their old way of living, like what, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I would say, first of all, you're not alone. I feel exactly that way. And I was just reflecting this weekend that, you know, my daughter is going into fourth grade. Now her second, third and fourth grade years have been affected by COVID. And that is heartbreaking. And then I think about the people whose entire high school careers will be defined by COVID. And I think we're all just completely at the end of our ropes. And I was really starting to shift back into that, okay, you know, like regular life mindset, you know, that we're going to plan some trips, we're going to have, you know, some people over to our house. And I think, again, I think we just all have to be really aware of the moment we find ourselves in. And that is that this Delta variant has completely shifted the narrative. And we have to rethink all those things we thought we would be doing safely this fall. And I think even in areas with high vaccination rates, indoor parties that are unmasked are not a good idea right now. And even if it's all healthy young people, like we were saying before, you know, what if someone transmits the virus during that party at your house? And even if your friend ends up okay, you don't know who your friend might infect before they realize they're sick at the grocery store. And that person has, you know, their wife is at home getting cancer treatment. And so I think we just, again, it's for the public good. We have to just take a step back, rethink what our plans were for the fall and make really smart choices, just like we did at the beginning of this. And it is hard and I am feeling it. And I know my kids are feeling it and gosh, I want to take them to a movie theater and do normal kid things and, you know, indoor sports, but it's just, it's not time for that yet. Sure. So it's kind of, again, reevaluating where we are at this point in time, because I similarly, I was starting to kind of really return to some semblance of normal. And now I've got, done a bit of a 180 and I have a, um, actually was planning on Saturday to drive with my kids to Ohio, where I'm from and stay at my parents' house. They're both vaccinated and mm-hmm. my sister and her husband are vaccinated and their kids, they have young kids who are unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. That was the plan, I was supposed to drive there. And at the moment I'm leaning toward not going. Um, I'm curious though, like how do you, I mean, again, for something like that, like that's a smaller gathering, right? right. Um, my sister lives in Israel, by the way. So this is oh. like, uh, like my like kind of one shot to really yeah. see her before she goes back. She and her family go back. I'm curious, like how, how it just feels. Sometimes it feels almost like impossible how we have how to make these decisions. Yes, I would say um, particularly moms right now are being asked to make impossible decisions every day. It they are impossible decisions. I mean. What do you do in that situation? I mean, again, I think it's about sort of risk tolerance and 
you know, the health of the people in your family and their family. And, you know, for instance, my parents live here where we live and they're older, generally healthy, but, you know, for a year, they essentially did not see their three grandkids. And that was hard. And, you know, we've gotten to a point now that they are vaccinated and now they're, you know, they're back in our lives kind of like normal. And I think that they came to this point where they were like, we're not going to spend the next five, 10 years of our life missing out on seeing our grandkids grow up. They've made reasonable steps to protect themselves. They both got vaccinated as soon as they could. They don't go to big indoor parties. They protect themselves. They know that we're doing reasonable things to protect ourselves. And at the end of the day, they decided that it was worth the risk to kind of reintegrate into our lives. And I do think for you know, my children's mental health and their mental health. I think it's been really good to, you know, kind of reintegrate what we're doing with them. So I would say, you know, going to a big wedding with 500 people across the country, probably not a good idea, but a small family gathering, you know, a family member that you almost never get to see, cousins that don't get, haven't been able to play with each other, all the adults are vaccinated, you know, I think as far as things go, that's relatively low risk, but you have to understand that by doing that, you know, you may get home when your kids spikes the fever, they test positive, and then all of a sudden they're missing the first two weeks of school or something like that. So with every choice we make, it's a calculation. Um, and, you know, fortunately, you know, most kids, again, who will test positive will likely be fine, but, you know, then it's going to have a snowball effect of the other things in your life that you have to miss out on when you're quarantining and then the other potential people you're going to infect. So like you said, an impossible choice, and we're doing that every day and we have for 18 months and we're all trying to do the best we can with the information we have. And I think that's what the most we can ask of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think like that is the thing that for me, for my patients, I think like brings up the most anxiety that there just really aren't any clear, right? A clear right or wrongs in many instances. It's kind of like weighing those risks and it sometimes it feels almost like paralyzing. How do we make that choice? Yes, and I think, you know, personally for my family, um, at the beginning we were so serious about, you know, the lockdown because, you know, my husband and I both work in healthcare and he was he even volunteered, you know, and staffed the COVID ICU here at the beginning. And so, you know, we were serious. We were not seeing anybody and we did that for a long time. And I kind of feel like we used up all of our COVID energy on that when in retrospect, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And I still, I tell myself when I think, oh, why were we so serious then when now it seems like kids are at higher risk than they would have been back then. But because of the choices me and my family made, we probably protected people in our community. And there are elderly people who may have died if we had not been so responsible, because again, you don't know that snowball effect of your infection in your family. And so I feel good about the choices we made at the beginning, but I do feel like I sort of used up all of my mental wherewithal and now it's like, oh my, you know, I kept my kids out of sports and they like essentially did nothing but play with each other for a year and a half. And now we've just got to do more of that. And do I really have it in me? And can I ask my kids to do this? And I think the answer is like, yes, it's our responsibility to continue, even though we're exhausted, to continue to make the most responsible choices we can. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and I'm wondering for parents who are like kind of, again, they want to make responsible choices. They also want to take into consideration the, the mental health, the well-being of themselves, their kids. Like what, if any activities would you say, not that there's no risk for obviously, right. but like might seem to you like, you know, you mentioned that your, your kids are getting, are seeing their grandparents now. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what activities might parents say like, okay, you know what, like these are probably worth us doing right now. Yeah. Or are there right. in your mind that seem like a lower risk that you, you feel more comfortable with taking? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think that any outdoor activity is better than an indoor activity. I mean, my poor seven-year-old son has been begging me to go to the indoor trampoline park for almost two years now. And that to me is the last place you want to be somewhere enclosed with children who you don't know and adults that you don't know their vaccination status. I would avoid that kind of thing at all costs, but outdoor restaurants, outdoor play structures, outdoor team sports. I think, you know, it, again, you, it requires some trust in the other adults in your community to say, you know, if, if your kid wakes up with a runny nose, you're not going to take them to the soccer game on Saturday morning. But, you know, I have seen, I'm sure you have, that that's not always the case that, you know, parents are minimizing symptoms and then risking the health of everyone on the team. But again, it's calculated risk. So I do think that like, I think outdoor team sports, you know, kind of depending on your situation is probably reasonable. And to be honest, my son is going to be on a soccer team this fall unless things get really out of hand down here because, you know, we delayed it last fall. And I just feel like a lot of kids did it last fall. We didn't do it. And I feel guilty as a mom that he hasn't had that experience yet. So as of now, he has signed up. I might change, might change my mind about that. But Again, I, I'm avoiding large crowds indoors, those large crowded concerts and things that we're seeing on the news, like that is not a good idea. Um, and then, you know, kind of, we all talked about our pods at the beginning of this, right? Like who's in your pod and, you know, people that you trust that you see every once in a while socially. And I think, you know, if it's a handful of children who your children are already exposed to in the classroom and they want to meet on the playground on Saturday morning, that's low risk because those families are sort of already sharing their germs. Um, so those kinds of activities, I think, are something you can do kind of to get back to normal as well. I think it's just so important to go back to sort of the basics of the sooner we get back, the sooner we want to get back to normal, the more children who are wearing masks in the classroom this fall, the sooner we will get back to normal. The less quarantines we will have, the more we will be able to work while our children are in the classroom where they need to be for their mental and social and academic development. And there is like something real basic we can all do. And that is send our children to school in masks. And the fewer children who wear masks, the more risky it is. And the more quarantines there are gonna be, the more disrupted our lives are all gonna be. And so I think, you know, as soon as we get this thing under control, we're going to be able to expand those activities we let our kids do. And it's like we we hold the power to do it. And that is anyone who is eligible needs to be vaccinated and all children need to be masked in the classroom. OK, so in, when thinking about returning to school, those are the two probably the biggest things that we can do. Right. Send our kids to school on masks get vaccinated if we're not already and encourage everyone else in our lives to mm -hmm. get vaccinated too. And you've been doing some really great kind of advocacy online, right? Trying to encourage people to, to get mad mm -hmm. or to, to, to send their kids to school in mass and to get back vaccinated. Um, 
Well, what else, if anything, my parents want to keep in mind about kind of, you know, getting ready to like steps that they can take mm-hmm. to, you know, feel a little more confident about sending their kids to school. I think, um, you know, parents are their best, the best advocates for their children. And so as a parent, you have every right to talk to the school nurse, talk to the principal, talk to the teacher in the classroom and really understand what protocols are in place, understand what will happen when a child in the class tests positive and who will be quarantined and for how long will they be quarantined understanding the school's policy on vaccinating teachers and other staff. Like we need to do our best to educate ourselves about the environments we're sending our kids into. And then the next step is to advocate for what we think is the safest and what the data shows us is the safest. And I'm talking about what the American Academy of Pediatrics says, what the CDC says, what our local departments of health say. Those are the people who know what they're talking about, and we need to be following those recommendations. And so I think it is our duty to advocate for a safe environment for our children. And in some areas, that's easier than others. Um, But I think knowledge gives me power. So, you know, I've already spoken to my children's principal, and we'll find out who our teachers are next week. And for me to understand what the environment is makes me feel more in control, even though I know I'm not really in control. So I encourage all parents to do that. I think parents can be really effective vaccine promoters. You know, I think sometimes people who have older children or children who aren't in school yet, they don't understand the situation that those of us who have these kids in school who are under 12 are in right now and how desperately we all want our children to have as normal of a school year as possible. And so parents, so, you know, I can talk to my neighbors about what masking and vaccinating can do to keep my kids in school. Because I think universally, we can all agree that our goal is for children to be in the classroom. The experts say that's what we need to do. Parents absolutely want their kids back in the classroom. And the thing we can do to increase our chances of a normal-ish school year is promoting vaccines and masks to everybody we come into contact with. Because if everybody convinces one other person to get vaccinated or one other parent of a teenager to vaccinate their teenagers or one other family to send their kids to school in masks, that will have a ripple effect that will lead to safer learning environments for our kids. Sure. So you don't need to be a, a pediatrician necessarily to advocate for these things is what you're saying. We can absolutely that on. Yeah. Yes. And I think it's also really important for, um, you know, non-healthcare professionals to understand the sources of the data that they're in the articles that they're reading and where they come from. And really, you know, I'm a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics, but that is a trusted voice and has been for decades when it comes to doing what's right for children's health and safety. And we have relied on the AAP for everything from car seat safety to bicycle helmet safety to, you know, how to handle your child with ADHD. We turn to the AAP and our kids' pediatricians for everything. Tiny little runny nose, scrape on the knee. What's the first thing you do? You call your pediatrician and you trust what they tell you to do because they are a trusted source of information. And it should be no different right now. We need to turn to those people that we've trusted with our children's health and safety their whole lives and ask them what we should do. And 
near uniformly, they're going to tell you vaccines and masks. And so I think we need to remember where we're getting our information from, where we have in the past gotten our information for our children's health and safety, and why would it be any different now? And it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, so before we wrap up, I want to kind of come back to that piece of like where we're getting information from. So I'm on Twitter, I kind of, you know, scroll through Twitter, and I see people's posts on there. And I'm For me, I think part of the reason I've started to feel anxious about the Delta variant is because I'm just seeing scary stories on Twitter um, about, you know, healthy kids getting really sick or pediatricians in hospitals, you know, saying like our our ICUs are completely full. And, Mm -hmm. And those are the things that scare me. And I, you know, I also recognize like that's not necessarily hard data, right? That, mm-hmm. that doesn't come from like a, a controlled scientific study. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering how much weight should we be placing on those anecdotes, on those mm-hmm. things that we might see? And again, right, because we talk a lot about like not buying into misinformation, right, mm-hmm. about vaccines or things like that. So I don't buy into that, but I, mm-hmm. I am finding myself feeling mm-hmm. kind of swayed mm-hmm. by these mm-hmm. stories I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're totally right. And it's, I think it's really important for those of us who are at the bedside to share with the public what we're seeing, because I think this is true for sort of any public health crisis, that we have a really unique perspective on what's going on in our communities. And I feel strongly it's our duty to share that. Obviously, we don't share, you know, unique patient information or anything identifiable, but to say what we're seeing day to day, but I do think it's the, um, the consumer of that information. I think it's their duty to also understand that that is one person's perspective who maybe works in the ICU in your community. And so they are seeing the sickest of the sick of the sick. And so you have to take that into context that what your pediatric critical care doctor is telling you, you should trust that, but you need to understand that that doesn't mean that every child who gets COVID is going to be in the, you know, in the ICU. And so I do think that, you know, in advocacy, they always say that you need the data, but you also need the anecdotes because numbers are numbers and numbers aren't often going to sway people and percent positivity and number of cases per day and percent of cases that are kids like we're all dealing with a lot and it's hard to digest what that means. But if you can see some of those numbers in addition to these real life stories that the healthcare providers are sharing with the public, I think both are important, Um, you know, but you really need to do your diligence and understand whose Twitter account it is you're reading. And are they actually, you know, a practicing physician or are they someone who got a degree three decades ago and now works somewhere totally unrelated and has some other agenda, right? And it's pretty easy to Google the people you're reading on Twitter and see, okay, yeah, they actually do work at a children's hospital in my city. So I think I can trust what they say. Um, So I think we all owe it to ourselves and to our communities to really do our diligence to understand who the experts are and I think even more critically, not share misinformation. So if you get a text or you see a Facebook post of some mom from your community about like, oh, I heard there's 10 kids in the ICU with COVID, or I heard that, you know, the vaccine gave eight of our sixth graders, you know, migraines, like 
that's not data. Those aren't experts. You shouldn't be spreading that information unless you have validated, validated it yourself or heard it from your Department of Health or, you know, some health authority in your community. And I think that's what we're seeing the results of all of this um, misinformation that has been spread about the safety of vaccines and the effectiveness of masks. And that's what we're battling against. And it's, it's, a, it's a hard battle to win. And so we all need to do our best to not be part of the problem. Well, that makes a lot of sense and that's helpful, like a helpful way to think about consuming that information mm -hmm. that you might see, see online and then what, what do we do with that information from mm -hmm. there, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, as I guess I'm going to ask kind of like a, a darker question first but, and then I'll follow up with maybe a more hopeful question. I'm curious kind of what concerns you the most about where we are right now in this pandemic and where we could go? Like what's kind of for you the thing that keeps mm -hmm. you up at night that really worries you for our kids? Yeah. Um, and then I'll follow up with kind of what what are you, feeling, what makes you feel hopeful at this okay. point in time? I mean, to be completely honest, this is the, the past three to four weeks. It's the first time in this pandemic that I have been lying awake at night, worried, frustrated, angry because I really do feel like at the beginning, we were sort of all in this together. We were doing the best that we could to protect our communities. And now that we have gotten to this point, I feel like everyone's just sort of abandoning children and no one is thinking about what's in their best interest. And we can all shout it from the rooftops, but I feel so incredibly frustrated that people don't seem to be listening. And of course, as a pediatrician, my focus is always on what's best for children. And it becomes very real and personal because I'm also a mother of three children. And I just, I mean, I have not been more frustrated, stressed, or angry, angrier than I am right now about what's happening. And it's really because I feel like we're watching a slow motion car accident, right? And we all see what's happening and we have ways to stop it, but nobody's stopping it. And we're going to wait until it happens and children get hurt before we say, oh, you know what, you were right. We probably should be wearing masks. We probably need to offer the vaccines to the small children as soon as we can. And I just like, why are we gonna wait for more kids to get sick and God forbid more kids to die before we really sound the alarms at the highest levels? And so, you know, I am worried in my community, schools are gonna open next week. Classrooms are gonna shut down. Our entire lives are gonna be turned upside down because we're gonna be home with our quarantined kids. Some proportion of those kids are gonna feel bad for days. Some proportion are gonna show up in the emergency department. Some are gonna be hospitalized and some are gonna be critically ill. And we, can, we know that is gonna happen if we move forward with the plan we have in place now. And I just think there's a solution that's so easy and it just frustrates me that the communities aren't willing to do what's best for kids and listen to the experts um, and follow the data. So, you know, I do believe statistically, my kids are probably gonna be fine, right? But there's a chance they won't be. And also like, I don't just care about my kids. I care about all the kids and they need us to speak up and fight for them. And this just sort of feels like one of those defining moments as a child health advocate that we need to just be, you know, again, shouting it from the rooftops until people listen. Um, so, you know, I think that, again, like you said, the UK data is somewhat reassuring that we're going to, you know, we are going to see an influx of 
positive cases in kids, kids in the ED, kids in the hospital, kids in the ICU, but overall, we're not gonna see the level of crisis we saw in adults back at the beginning of this. And then I, you know, but I just, it's just really hard for me to even just fathom how we're in the position that we're in and we're putting our children in the position we're putting them in. And it's just really, it's really difficult. Yeah. I, I sometimes feel like we're in like two different universes, like, mm -hmm. like not, not, uh, yeah, it just seems like there are some people who are really concerned and I, I mm -hmm. share a lot of your concern. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who are just done with the pandemic and it, mm -hmm. it like, we're just mm -hmm. not on the same plane there. Yeah. 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 So in terms of though, the kind of like the more hopeful side, right? I'm wondering like what, what does, what, what it is giving you hope, if anything, at this point in time? Yeah. There's something there. I mean, I am very hopeful that it will be um, in the not too distant future that vaccines will be available for our smaller children. And, um, I worry that, you know, the vaccination rates aren't going to be high, but it does give those of us who want to protect our children the option to do so. And I will be sleeping so much better at night once my own children are vaccinated and some proportion of the kids in their classrooms are vaccinated. And, you know, I care for, you know, medically complex children and children with immunosuppression and complex chronically ill children. And I want those kids vaccinated as soon as possible. And so I am really hopeful and excited about the day that I find out that kids can be vaccinated. And, you know, I'm fortunate I work in an area where we, we will be able to offer the vaccine to our patients. So I will be able to be sort of on the front lines of giving that hope to other parents as well. And I really do look forward to that day. And I think the other thing that gives me hope is, um, our children are so resilient and, you know, I've seen firsthand in my own house, how my children have dealt with this blow after blow and just remained flexible and resilient. And the children give me hope because I do believe that, um, you know, they have been sort of the shining stars of this whole thing because their worlds were turned upside down when they had locked down, you know, back in 2020 and missed out on full years of school and interactions in the classroom. But they're still, you know, they're relying on us to do the right thing, but they are sort of the source of most of my hope at this moment. They are pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. All right, well, this has been so helpful. Um, Good. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time. It has been, I think, you know, hearing your thoughts and gathering that information. I think this is so critical for parents who are feeling anxious right now so that they can know kind of what, what's actually real, what's happening and mm -hmm. to use that information to help guide them mm -hmm. as they make decisions for themselves and their families. So thank you again. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come on today and have this conversation with you. It has given me some hope to just be talking about it and to um, to see that other parents are concerned. And it is always my pleasure to share um, real and accurate information with parents of small children. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department.
And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alyssajared.com.